Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. Letting them just respond in their own time as teenagers is a really crucial element, I think especially in that relationship and that connection with our kids, which is everything, right? It's the foundation of everything going really well or really poorly. Welcome to Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist, and I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. Each week, I share my thoughts on topics related to child development, mental health, parenting, education, and parent-teacher collaboration. You can read more on my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com or listen here. So let's get started with today's topic. Welcome back to the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. Today, I am welcoming Penny Williams, who is one of my colleagues. We are in the same state, and we were just joking about how we actually have never met in person, but we feel like we have. This happens a lot in our field, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to dive in and introduce Penny, and then we are going to get started talking about teenagers today. So Penny Williams is a parent coach, author, and mother who has helped thousands of families raising neurodivergent kids and teens through her podcast, award-winning books, online parent training programs, and parent coaching. She's making a difference in the lives of those parenting neurodivergent kids. Whether your child was diagnosed yesterday or six years ago, Penny helps turn those struggles into triumphs and guides parents into surviving and thriving. I'm thrilled to welcome her to the podcast where we're going to talk about something we are both doing at the moment, which is raising neurodivergent teens. So welcome, Penny. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Yeah. So I want to start where I start with everyone. Just tell us about your journey as a parent, getting you here, your why in this work, what gets you going, what you're excited to talk about. Yeah. So if I start at the beginning, my son was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of six. He was barely six. And really the crap hit the fan the day he walked into kindergarten because he had been cared for at home before that. And so he had no school experience. And we had no clue (laughs) that anything 
was up, except that he was just a super active boy, right? That's all I knew. Sweet and smart. And so we thought, here we go. It's going to be great. And it was not. It was the opposite of great, right? It was horrendous, honestly. And it took me a really long time to figure out what in the world to do as a parent, because at that point in 2008, there wasn't a lot of guidance online. There was Attitude Magazine, there were some Hallowell books, and that was really the majority of what was out there. There was no guide for sure for parents. And so I struggled for a few years trying to figure it out. You know, Ross Green's book, The Explosive Child, was kind of my first big turning point. And I got to a point where we were doing okay. And I could sort of look back and reflect and say, wait a minute, there really was a good path here that I sort of stumbled on and did in the wrong order. And, you know, it wasn't pretty, but I could put it in the right order, right? And help other parents. Like, why are we all by ourselves spending years desperately trying to figure this out? And that's how I ended up doing books first, well, blogging first, then books, then courses, then coaching, you know, it just keeps growing and growing. And it was because I didn't want other people to have to go through what we went through. And I saw no point in that. Like I had spent so much time and energy researching and trialing and just was very obsessed, honestly, with ADHD for a long time. And so I decided I had to put it out there. I had to try to help other people. And let's see, when he was age 12, he was also diagnosed with autism spectrum, very subtle. It was very difficult to see. It took several clinicians, but I knew that something else was going on for him. And um, he also has some learning disabilities and a high IQ. So he's very much you know, that kid that we talk about being an alphabet soup kid, right? And had been a teen. He's actually a young adult now. He's 20, almost 21, which is remarkably crazy to me that we've made it, right? Like those early days, you think, I'm not even going to make it to the weekend. I'm not even going to make it to tomorrow. This is just too much. And now I can look back and go, you know, it wasn't. And we got here and we're doing okay. And he's going to get where he's going in his own time, as long as we support him and are really open to him being authentically who he is. Yeah. And before we get too deep into talking about the nitty gritty of things, I just want to expand something you just said. So as a child psychologist, but also as a parent who is on this journey too, I often will get asked you know, this question comes totally from our parent anxiety and is absolutely natural, but like, will they ever, will they ever this, will they ever that? And long gone are the days where I trust a clinician who says your child will never, right? Because, yes. oh my gosh, we don't know, right? And so I always caution parents, if a professional is saying that to you, just be cautious, know your kid and take your gut feeling about what you think your kid is capable of. But it's always very clouded with this veil of anxiety of like, well, what if they don't? What if they never drive? Or what if they, you know, are never able to live alone? So all these things that come up for us. But when we parent, of course, from that place of fear, our kids can feel that and that can break down our trust and our engagement and our relationship with them. So the thing that worked for me the best was just, and I say this to parents all the time, is just one school year at a time. Like in those early days, you feel like you're never going 
to see the other side of like, and sometimes that's the beauty of it. Sometimes that's the mystery of like, I don't know what this kid's going to do. I have no idea. But sometimes just allowing yourself to take it one school year at a time. And then my son is 15 and I had no idea what 15 would look like, but here we are. And there's so many things about it. I could have never imagined him doing and he's doing it. Right. So I'm just curious if you have kind of a go-to phrase or mantra that helped you for younger parents or parents of younger children who are in those day-to-day moments of, oh my gosh, will they ever X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Well, as parents, we are brilliant at future casting but it gets really clouded with that anxiety, right? And so we're constantly worried about way down the road in the future. And what I teach parents is every time you're going to say something about what your child isn't doing, you put yet on the end. My kid can't tie his shoes yet. My kid can't keep his calendar with his school assignments on his own yet. My kid can't get out of bed in the morning on his own yet. And so that really helps us. It helps with our mindset. It helps us to say, I believe that it's possible, but it's not happening right now. It's also a good reminder that our kids are developmentally delayed. That's the whole basis of all of this is that they are behind in a lot of different areas. And so that's also a reminder that they might be behind, but it doesn't mean they're not going to get there. And we have these conversations with parents all the time because you know, we feel like, again, we're future casting, you know, like for a teen, my 16 year old ought to be able to, right? And right there, that's a red flag. If you're saying they ought to be able to do something or they should be doing something, you're already sort of tackling it the wrong way because you're saying that there's a problem here that you don't feel like you're going to have a resolution to. And all I ask parents is to say, okay, it's okay if it's further down the timeline. It's okay if it's not right now, even though all their peers are on it right now. It's okay because that's not their truth and we can push it down the road a little bit. And that's fine. It's going to be okay. For myself, my son has been taking a lot of time off. He graduated from high school two years ago. He had the most traumatic, horrible experience in school. He graduated with a really high IQ thinking that he was stupid and incapable, basically, despite all the work that I did to fight for him. And so he's just needed a lot of healing and a lot of downtime and a lot of opportunities to have little successes and start to build his confidence. And there have been many times where I have been really freaked out by the fact that he was 19, 20, not doing much, (laughs) not doing much at all, really, honestly. And I had to remind myself, you know, His timeline is different and it's okay. It's okay if he doesn't do anything for a few years. It doesn't mean that he won't. And I think we get really caught up in what's happening right now and assuming that it means forever. And I'm so guilty of this right now in this place in sort of his growth that I feel like, oh, you know, what if he feels like he never has to work or he never has to take another class again, right? What if that never is something he feels like he needs to do? You know, it's really worrisome, but I know that that's not the case. Like I have to remind myself what is happening right now is what needs to happen for him. And he will engage in things. And in fact, a week and a half ago, 
he agreed to sign up for a class that he's been interested in since he graduated high school, but didn't feel like he could take another class, especially because it's an online class because it's not local. It's in voice acting, actually, which he really enjoys. And so just out of the blue, you know, he was like, you know what? Yeah, this time I am ready for their next round. I am cool to do this. I would like to do this, you know, and it's like, you know, the sky's open, the angels sing, right? Like, and then I think, okay, it is going to be okay, right? Like we have to take those tiny little things as these big signs and reminders that it is going to be okay, that it is okay for us to be optimistic and hopeful. It doesn't mean that we're not also being realistic. Yes. And I love what you said about this age, they should be doing this. This is really common in preschool years and really common in adolescent years. There's something about kind of the second through eighth graders that are just all in this like category together, playing with each other. The grades aren't really counting yet, but they can kind of do school. So, but before that, parents have this, and I have definitely felt this as a parent, parents have this like, oh, where are they going to kindergarten? What are they doing? And are they going to kindergarten? And I just remember having moments like that where I had like a whole year where I didn't want to small talk with anyone because I didn't want to answer any questions about what kind of kindergarten anybody was going to. And then I felt like I didn't have those questions for a long time until I had a teenager. And the question now is, oh, are they, is he taking driver's ed? And I'm like, clearly you don't know us very well <laughs> or know my kid because that's like a whole paragraph of an answer. And do I even know you well enough to go into all of that and to tell you my kid's story and all of that? So what we always go to is we're this age, so we should be doing this. And that's not serving any of us because it's raising our anxiety. And it's also sending a message to our kids that they're quote unquote behind in some way when our education system and honestly, our social culture of doing this at 18 and this at 22 doesn't align with what we, of course, know about brain development, which is our brains don't fully develop till we're 25. So you've got time. And the less we emphasize these time structures, I think the more securely attached our teens can feel with us and supported that they can feel. So thank you for sharing that story. Let's kind of take it back earlier in the parenting journey, because this informs the teen years and how we parent the teen years a lot. Most parents of teens I talk to feel like they're kind of veteran parents by this point, right? And so there are things you feel like you mastered. And one of those is that biology behavior connection. And you get to the point where you do understand that not everything is a choice. You do understand that your kid's skills or lagging skills or motivation and things. So I guess take me back to what comes to your mind when you were parenting or when you work with parents of younger children, and first, the importance of first understanding that biology-behavior connection and why that is so imperative to understand before you're parenting a teenager. It's so imperative to understand in human culture, I think. What we know about the connection between biology and behavior applies to every human being at every age, really. And so it's crucial for us as parents of neurodivergent kids to understand this because we do have typically extra behavior challenges 
And we need to be addressing what's lying underneath in order to affect change. For neurotypical kids, you know, the traditional parenting I call crime and punishment works for a lot of kids, right? Like it's sort of worked for me. And I could navigate that. Is it the best way to parent? In my opinion, no. It is always better to sort of raise human beings rather than just try to control our kids, which is what really crime and punishment parenting is. But we have that culture, right? That's what our justice system is. That's what, you know, you go to school and the school structure with behavior is crime and punishment. Like it's everywhere and it's not serving our kids or us because if you come at your kid with a lot of punishment all the time and it's never changing anything, it's eroding your connection with your kid, but it's also giving you a lot of negative feelings about your kid. And they aren't even really accurate because we know that so often behavior isn't a choice that isn't intentional. It is our natural reaction through our nervous system. It is our biology that is reacting. And often it's reacting for our kids and they don't have control over it, at least not until it happens and it's out there. And then they're like, oh, you know, I didn't mean to yell or I, you know, and sometimes they learn to sort of course correct. But for me, that was probably the number one piece of information in almost 15 years since my son was first diagnosed that made the biggest impact, not just to my parenting, but to me kind of as a human being and understanding other people. And that interconnectedness is so, so important because We can either look at behavior through that behavior-based lens. So my son, this example I use all the time, it's a real-life example for us from years ago, but it so clearly illustrates the difference between sort of discipline and punishment and seeing behavior as communication, as Ross Green teaches us. And so he, you know, would often, it happened more than once (laughs) at homework time, he would get so frustrated, he would tear up and wad up his homework paper, usually math, and put it in the trash and storm off, (laughs) you know, while I'm sitting there trying to help him, like not even on his own, but he just leaves me, has his moment of anger and frustration and trashes his paper and leaves. Now, it feels a little personal, right? When that happens, it feels like he's done exactly the wrong thing, made the exact wrong choice, and it feels really purposeful. And What it really is, is this work is too hard for me. I don't understand it. I'm getting really frustrated because for him, he also had dysgraphia. So lining up his numbers and being able to read them made everything more complicated. It was also, I don't know how to express this feeling yet. I don't know how to regulate what I'm feeling yet. And so it's just coming out in this really sort of primitive way. That's our biology taking action without our thinking brain, right? And when our kids are in that state in their nervous system, that survival or emotional brains are offline. The thinking, I mean, I'm sorry, the thinking brain is offline because our emotional or survival brains have flooded and taken over. And just knowing that, like I could, when I learned that, I could think back to so many scenarios with my son, so many situations where it made so much more sense why I couldn't just talk him through it or talk him out of it or rationalize. You know, I call myself the great rationalizer. For years, I just kept trying to help him through something through talking. Never, ever worked. It was because 
his biology had taken over. He couldn't process what I was saying. He couldn't think about it and formulate answers. It was actually piling on the overwhelm that his system was already in. And I think this is super crucial to understand as a parent of a teenager because we put so much pressure on kids. And this is like the one thing that my son kept trying to get through to me as a teenager. And it took a while because I'm a fixer and I just wanted to help him right away. There's no waiting and there's no like dilly-dallying around. It's let's get on this thing. And for him, it was the more you pressure me, the less I'm able to do anything. And I was like, well, you know, I know that makes sense for all of us, but if I don't give put pressure on you, you're not going to do anything. <laughs> like I felt trapped in that vicious cycle. And when I finally was like, you know what, I'm just going to listen to my kid. I'm just going to really try what he's saying. It was magical. Without the pressure, would he do it right away? No. So I'm still angsty inside, but it got done eventually, right? And i that's the thing. That was my stuff, right? That was my stuff. It wasn't my kid's stuff. If he was going to get done this thing that he needed to get done in the timing that he needed to get it done, then did it really matter? And again, what I was doing was making it worse, not better. We have to remember this. So often as parents, especially in the teen years, what we're doing is actually make it worse instead of better. You know, I really want to help you with your homework. Let's sit down together. And that makes them feel bad. It makes them feel bad about themselves sometimes. Some kids are open to it. Some are not. And letting them just respond in their own time as teenagers is a really crucial element, I think especially in that relationship and that connection with our kids, which is everything, right? It's the foundation of everything going really well or really poorly. And that relationship has to come first. And, you know, these are all like the little mantras that I have going on at different times. Don't pressure him. Let him do it at his own time. If you pressure, you're making it worse, right? If you force him to try to talk to you now, you're making it worse. My big one for years and years was he's not giving me a hard time. He's having a hard time. Mm -hmm. And that just circles back to all of that. It kind of wraps it all in a big bow. Yeah. And for younger kids, it can be a little more straightforward or obvious. Like you, there's like, you know, daily skills of like getting dressed and finding your shoes and getting out the door and doing your homework. And then for teens, it's so relational. So like, even though our neurodivergent kids are, again, asynchronous skills all over the place, they may be having the executive functioning of more of a middle schooler, even though they're a high schooler, and they may have the reading skills of a college student, even though they're a high schooler. And then on layered on top of that, you have these social development asynchronicities that I always think, you know, there's friendships and then there's like romantic attraction thrown in there too. And that's like a whole nother, like, does my kid even like want to have a relationship anytime? And that's another thing I tell parents, like, we don't really know when that interest is going to develop. So just like throw out all your time frames, even though the chronological stuff we've talked about before when I work with families and that we've talked about is academic or cognitive or learning then there's the whole social and independent stuff. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. 
In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it, and the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com slash tracker to get started. So I'm curious what comes to mind when we kind of talk about, you know, I love what you're saying about lowering the pressure, which is going to lower anxiety, but that obviously is going to raise anxiety in the parent because we, again, as parenting teens, our mind is going to, well, when I was 16, I had a job and I was driving and I had a bank account and all this thing but we are not our children. Our children are not us and our children did not have our parents either. So the first thing that always comes to my mind that I think about is, as you said, lowering the pressure, following the interests, which is what you're describing with your son. And because so many of us think about, I just need my kid to meet more people. So let's say we have an autistic teenager who is into something really specific. If we just put them in a group of people and none of them share that interest, they're not going to flourish. And if we put them in a group with people who have that interest, they're probably going to be able to engage. Their face will light up and you will see them more excited. So I'm curious your thoughts on when we talk about just those social anxieties that come up for us as parents, as we see it a lot in preschool again, and we see it in those teen years of those discrepancies between like our high school years of like, I want my kid to have this experience because it was so fun for me. And then our kids high school years, which may not at all be the time in that neurodivergent teens life where they have the social skills to do what we did as parents, they may gain those in their 20s. And that's okay. So yeah, what comes to mind when I bring up the social asynchronicities? (sighs) It's hard. Yeah, it is. We just have to take a breath. I just have to take a breath before I even talk about that, right? Like, it's so hard. And what I first learned was to put academics last. Not first, last. That's such a paradigm shift for people. Yes. But I agree with you. And it's a cultural shift. You're swimming upstream. And that's not the message that you get from the high school. No, and it's not the message your kid's getting. Your kid is getting the message that they must do awesome in high school, they must go straight to college, and they must succeed in college to succeed in life. That is not true. That is BS. It is totally not true. Growing up for me, I am also gifted, and I just kind of breeze through school. I I could easily get through with very little effort 
and get A's and B's, much to my parents' chagrin, because, and, and my dad even mentioned this to me not that long ago, imagine what you could have done if you tried a little more. And I'm like, but it didn't matter to me. I did okay. Like I had A's and B's. Did I need straight A's? Not really. And I got punished if I got lower than a B because I was smart and capable. And that's the mindset that I grew up with. And here comes this kid in my life who is smarter than I by a lot, but can't perform in school. And I had to realize that that was okay. That does not mean that his whole life is going to be a train wreck just because he wasn't a straight A student or an honor roll student in high school. Doesn't matter because I knew already that a traditional four-year college was not going to be right for him anytime soon. He may choose to do that later in adulthood, but after high school or any time, I mean, even now he is more than two years out and he still is nowhere near. He just decided that he was sort of okay to attempt a class online that's like six meetings. Okay. So, and that's okay. And once I could accept that, that grades weren't everything, that yes, we wanted to get a high school diploma. We wanted him to graduate because we knew that that does affect a lot of people, not everyone. Again, there are people who've dropped out and are wildly successful, but it's not that we gave up on those goals of success. We just redefined what that looked like based on the kid that we had. And then I was able to say, okay, my relationship with him matters more than the homework, than battling over that, than a lot of things. His mental health for me was top priority. That was the barometer that I used to measure everything because it was very fragile. (laughs) And every day when he walked in that building, he was just inundated with messages that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't smart enough, that he wasn't applying himself enough, that he was lazy and unmotivated. You know, for me, I had to focus on trying to make sure that he had some self-confidence and felt like he was worthwhile in the world. And you know, our gifted teens have a lot of existential stuff going on as well. And we really battled with that. I want to say freshman or sophomore year, it was really, really hard for about a year. He just felt like he had no purpose and it was really tough. And again, I had to say, okay, some of this other stuff doesn't matter. What matters is his mental and emotional health. And how do I support him in that? The other thing I want to say about the social stuff is that especially social parents feel like kids have to have friends, they have to have a lot of friends, and they have to go and do things with their friends all the time. That is a healthy teenager. They want to be with their friends all the time. And for a lot of kids, that's just not true. There are a lot of kids who need to replenish with downtime and alone time. And it's not even necessarily the difference between introvert and extrovert, which most people understand, but there's an extra layer with like kids who are really sensitive to sensory environment, who have to really work hard at social interactions, they're exhausting. They can't do it all the time because it just takes so much from them. And I had to do exactly what you're talking about, separating my own teenage years from my kids' teenage years because neither one of them like met up with friends outside of school. Rarely did they. 
And it wasn't that they wanted to. It was that that's what they needed. And I had to look at it from that perspective. They weren't feeling like they were missing out on anything. This is what they actually wanted. This is what made them feel best. And I have to have this conversation with parents a lot because we do. We really define sort of social success with spending a lot of times with friends when they're teens and young adults. And that just isn't something that feels good for a lot of kids. And I want parents to really think about that. So if your kid's sitting at home every weekend and they're really upset because all their friends are doing things and they're not doing them with them, then that's an issue. They're not feeling good about that situation. But if they're at home and they're feeling a-okay with that, then that's okay, (laughs) right? And if they're going to school in person every day, they're getting social interaction. It's not like they're not practicing those skills. It's just too much for them and they need some some downtime. So I think for one thing, this world is so much different now for our kids than it was when we were growing up. It is night and day. We don't get it. We don't understand. (laughs) And I think for us as kids, when our parents said things like this to us, a lot of times it was relatable, but now it is just not relatable. This is a whole different world entirely that they're trying to navigate. We have to remember that. I think about Like when I graduated high school, I went to college. I had two jobs. I had decent grades. Like I was doing all the things, right? And that was me. That was what I felt I needed to do. Doesn't mean my kids have to be in that space at that age. It doesn't mean that they're any less achieving in in the long scheme of things. And I love that you brought up the idea of challenging what social success is. So How I tend to reframe this for parents is to call it socially satisfied because we all have our own definition of that. And I completely agree with you. We, our barometer is our child's mood. And in many neurodivergent teens identity formation phase of their development, they are gravitating more towards their interests than necessarily the people. And so, you know, neurotypical adolescent development is all about, you know, finding similarities and often social similarities of like fashion and music. And, and, you know, the interests are very social in many neurotypical teen circles. And I always go back to, okay, what is this neurodivergent teens interest and it might be that it is a deep interest that there is no one else at their high school that is into this or so it makes sense that they may do something social online with someone or that they may hang out with someone who's you know vetted obviously but like 30 years older that shares this interest with them And it could be that there's diversity in the ages or the locations of people, which, again, with the internet is of extremely different accessibility to relationships than we had. So I try to expand parents' awareness of it's okay for your kid to go completely outside the box if an interest is engaging with them. And it makes sense that, you know, kids pull away naturally and just neuroscience research and development pull away from caregivers in adolescence. And it this is completely an anecdotal observation, but it makes sense to me that 
let's say an autistic teenager would go deeper into their interests and a neurotypical teenager would go deeper into their peer group. That makes sense to me because either way, you're pulling away from your family, trying to find your identity and your place and to find that social satisfaction. And that might be with one other person across the world who can talk to you online about this specific thing. And as long as our kids are safe and we're explaining all the things about, you know, again, they, they know way more about technology than we do. And we're always trying to play catch up with that. But as long as they're safe and connected, our barometer is their mood. So I love that you brought that up because I think that's a huge difference in raising a neurotypical parent, raising a neurodivergent teen. We really have to question what is that social satisfaction for us? And I think it's healthy to point out a little bit like extroversion, introversion, but again, it is a step further of their differences even within a family of three, four, or five family members living in the same home. Like parents often have different social satisfaction meters. And it's not just interest. It's, again, it's sensory experiences. Like I would much prefer to be in a small group versus like, a large football game or something, you know, whatever it is, like the, you know, the crowds, the noise, all those things are a part of the social satisfaction. And then the recovery that lots of our kids need just after like a day of school. For some of them, a school day is socially overwhelming and they may not have even interacted with anyone. And that's all about sensory and the messages they're getting. And that was my kid, you know, his freshman year, he could not make it through a full school day in the building. He just melted down every single day. He was texting me, heading in the bathroom, you know, please get me, I can't do it. And we went through that whole school refusal stuff since fourth grade, actually, all the way through to the end. But it was really difficult to say, yeah, I can bring you home every day. Like, you can't really do that. And finally, the administration realized that we really had to do something different for him. And he actually did about two-thirds of the day in person, and then he came home and he did one or two classes online. And I helped him through that because he needed the support to be successful at that, but that's what he needed. He just could not take the overwhelm and the sensory assault, honestly, of high school all day, every day at first. And he, you know, is a COVID high schooler, so he had a drive through graduation that was about Mm, I'd say 20 seconds. (laughs) I mean, it was really so fast and just done. And he, you know, they had no prom, which he probably wouldn't have participated in anyway, but it was very different for him. It was very different, but he had planned to his senior year to go in person all day, every day. He really wanted to challenge himself to do it. And he wanted to sort of make that progress and that next step. And then it was online school and he didn't have the opportunity And so there was definitely some regression with COVID for him. The opportunities that we thought we would have that year, he was going to do a little bit of part-time work. And, you know, there were so many things that he was ready to try and that really got pushed. And so we've been trying to sort of play catch up with that too and understand that like most of us lost a year or two during COVID, like so much of it just pushed everybody back. And so that was okay. I wanted to share how he sort of found his tribe and his friend group, because I think it's really important for especially parents of younger kids who are listening. It takes a long time. Our kids are not likely to find their people in like second grade. And so for him, it was joining robotics club in 
seventh or eighth grade. I want to say seventh, but it could have been eighth. He was like 12 or 13 before he found his people. And he actually said to me one day, you know, I, I actually have real friends now, mom, you know, the ones that come up and they talk to you first before you even saw them in the hallway. Oh, that's the best definition of a friend. Yes. And I, of course, lost it and bawled about that from joy, <laughs> pure joy, right? That he had finally found some people that got him and that he connected with. And it was by going to a club after school, which he didn't want to do because he already at the end of a school day, he was like, oh, but I'm like, you know, I think you would really like this. Let's just give it a try. And like the first day he clicked with a bunch of kids in there and that was that. And he was friends with them all through school, but that friendship looked different. He didn't spend a whole lot of time in person with them. When he was younger, he did, you know, we would have kids over, they would have other kids over, right? But as they became more independent, they were all kind of introverted, you know, online gaming sort of kids. And so that was okay. Like they were still hanging out together. They were still supporting each other. One of those kids just a couple of weeks ago, out of the blue, texted him and said, hey, let's get together. They hadn't seen each other in person since, you know, before COVID started, really. They didn't have the opportunity to even go to school and see each other. It was amazing. He was so happy. It just lit him up and it was doable for him. It was a couple hours. They were going to meet in a place they knew and just catch up. And it was amazing. And so I tell all these stories to say that your kids will get there. It's just not going to be in the time that's comfortable for you, probably. It's probably not going to be in the same time as you. Yeah, and they'll get there, but we don't know when. You know, there's so much about our anxiety as parents. I think part of the reason that we fall back on the ages or the grades or the cultural norms of things is because so much of our anxiety as parents is predicting. This is only going to be hard for this much longer because we're going to get to this age or this grade and then they'll be able to do that. But that is not how this works <laughs> at yeah. all. So you have to embrace like the mystery of it. And like that moment that he told you about the kids saying hi in the hallway, you never know when those moments are going to come. So part of that is like, what's so wonderful about it? Like you had no idea that that was going to happen that day. And you have to just get behind this idea of the silver lining is kind of just, I wonder what's going to happen. You know, like, I don't know what's going to happen, but you have to still believe in the yet, believe in the, I don't know when it's going to happen, but as long as you feel like you're moving forward, even though that pace may be not what other people's pace is, that's progress, right? And so you're reminding me too of, in addition to like the social satisfaction we talked about of the learning satisfaction, which I think is so mismatched in traditional schooling for many of our kids, but that kind of leads into thinking about work and careers and thinking about executive functioning and like it's really everything and like independence, executive functioning, taking care of themselves. And so helping them build a kind of a, a work ethic that they're satisfied with that is probably not going to look like what we were taught with work ethic. And so when I think about, you know, and independence is of course a huge question that I think we probably both get on teenagers because you cannot tell a teenager to do something and they do it. That's just like not how this works for everyone. And then you add on top of it that if it doesn't seem relevant to their life because they're not motivated by it because it's not their interest, and if there's a lagging skill there because of an asynchronous developmental 
time frame going on. That's why parents of teens feel so frustrated. So any tricks or stories about, you know, part of this, of course, is going to be connecting to your teen, having a relationship with your teen and reducing that pressure and waiting. But any stories of independence or, oh gosh, hygiene is one I get all the time of like, how do we get our kids to, to take care of their bodies when they don't even like care how they look all the time, right? So that kind of loops back in the social stuff. But yeah, what comes to mind when we talk about independence? Oh, the hygiene. I will say we still struggle with the hygiene. We did pretty good with it when we had a routine and a schedule. When we are getting up every day at the same time, going to school, between waking up and going to school, you knew that you brushed your teeth and your hair and you put on clothes. Because basically that's all I asked. And then deodorant when he was old enough. Because I had to keep it simple or it wasn't going to happen. And then at night, you know, he would take a shower. That was easy to do. We just kept doing it the same way all the time. COVID hits. No hygiene. <laughs> like, none is happening. No routine. No routine, no schedule, so no hygiene. It just has to be one of those things that you make very routine. Or it just isn't, it's not immediately important, right? For our kids who are neurodivergent, most of them. Right. It's not immediately important. Every time he goes out of the house, I'm always like, dude, there's a stain on that shirt. Can you switch it? You know, and he's like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, but to me, it matters. But to him, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. It truly doesn't matter. He does not care. The only thing that matters about hygiene is how it feels to your neurodivergent teen. Right. So if that shirt is uncomfortable, it can be changed. But if that shirt just looks dirty, but it feels comfortable, no motivation to change that. Right. Totally okay. My husband, he would die if he knew I was going to tell this story on a podcast. But just like a few days ago, we had to go somewhere and he had like something on his shirt. And I was like, you got something on your shirt. Oh, I know. I'm like, but we're going somewhere. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> and then, of course, he refused to change it for me, right? Because it was not a big deal. And that's what we're dealing with separating our stuff. Again, we have to separate our stuff from other people's stuff. That's my stuff. I have social anxiety. I put so much into how I look. I care way too much about it because of social anxiety. So that's me. It's not them. <laughs> and that's what's so super important. And so, you know, I have a lot of coaching conversations with parents about teens who don't make hygiene a priority or they really struggle with getting ready in the morning, that routine or getting ready for bed, and they might get some of the stuff done, but not all the stuff done. And I'm like, okay, what's most important? Let's just get those two or three things that are absolutely crucial into some sort of structure and routine first so that they're automatic habits. Then let's add in like the nice-to-haves, like washing your face. I was never taught to wash my face as a kid. My kids don't have the routine of like every day washing their face, right? It just isn't part of our world for some reason. I'm not against it. It's great. You should do it. I should be doing it too. You should wash your face. I should be washing my face on a regular basis, which I do in the shower, but anyway. But that importance has to play a role. And so if we're asking them to do a few other things besides just like shower and brush your teeth, none of it's important to them. You're never going to get there if you just keep focusing on everything. 
you've got to break it down. You've got to say, I'm going to get there, but I'm not going to get there overnight. My child is going to get to the point where when they have a job and they leave the house, someday they're going to make sure they're showered, they have clean clothes on, they have some deodorant on, their teeth are brushed. Most of them, right? I'm sure there are some that will still struggle with that, but it's really about the routine and the structure. And so right now we have no real routine and structure on a daily basis for him. And so it's a lot of reminders from me. There isn't pushback anymore. You know, when he was a teen in school, he didn't want to shower. He didn't like it. It was boring. That's what he would tell me. It's so boring and I don't need to do it every day. And I'm like, but, you know, and for a while it was every other day. Does he need to do it every day? I always, in my own parenting and I always teach parents, step back and ask yourself, what is super important here? What is the very end goal? And what do you need right now? You know, there's those three elements. And what can you do to take very small steps to get there? And yes, it's ideal that our kids have, and we're using the example of hygiene. This goes for anything, but it's ideal that they have really good hygiene. It makes social interactions better. (laughs) It makes them more employable, maybe. It has some impact on their lives. Yeah, it's ideal, but our kids can't manage it all at one time. So let's break it down and get them there over a slower trajectory. And it's that slower trajectory that makes us anxious. Yes. Because we go back to how we, you know, especially if you are a box checking anxious parent like I am, who's a recovering perfectionist. Ditto. (laughs) You really have to undo every single little moment in your brain that's like, oh, they're not doing this. That means they're never going to do it. And then you go down this like rabbit hole and they're living under a bridge somewhere, which is not necessarily true. (laughs) So most likely not making it simple, making it doable. I always say I would rather a child do one thing, a teen, do one thing independently than do five things with help. Like I would rather them do one thing independently than five things with their parent holding their hand through it. Because if we can start with independence, then we can lead into that intrinsic motivation of like, I did it. I remember to do it. I did it on my own. And then over time, again, not knowing how much that time frame might be and handling your anxiety about that, adding another step and adding another step. So yes, hygiene is the example we used here, but that could go with any type of executive functioning or independence task with many, many things. Yeah. And you brought up a really important point, asking yourself, what could make this doable for my kid? For us, for the shower being boring, for example, he plays YouTube really loudly on his phone on the counter when he's in the shower. Totally fine. What is he hurting? You know, and some people would be like, why in the world? You don't need to do that to take a shower. Maybe your kid does. My kid does. He needs it to take a shower. And it's totally fine. How do you make it doable? Do you create a routine checklist? Do you let them use an app that helps them with that? You know, there's so many apps now that didn't exist when my kid was younger that I wish did that you can set up routines. You can set up a lot of them are gamified and June comes to mind right away, J-O-O-N in that. And so there's so many tools that we can use to help our kids 
be more successful on their own. We can scaffold that support, not hold their hand, not nag them, because all of that makes it worse. (laughs) Nagging makes it so much worse. And for us too, who enjoys nagging? I don't. I hate it. But you get there out of your own desperation again, right? It's our stuff. So much of parenting is about teasing our own stuff away from our kids. It's so many moments during our conversation today. I keep coming back to my whole tagline for the work that I do, which is what if this is all about not changing them, but about changing us? And it is. It is about changing us. They're going to develop when they develop, and we're going to give them strategies and read all the things and do all the things that we can. But it is about changing us and reshaping our mindset about success and they are schooling us. Yeah. And it's, you know, about changing us so that they can be who they are. We change ourselves our own mindset. Why would we want to stop them from being who they are? Exactly. Exactly. And again, that goes back to like asking yourself, what is that super high level goal to have a happy, successful confident adult. I want a kid to grow up to have his version of success, his version of a happy life. And if he doesn't wash his face today, is that going to keep him from doing that? Like seriously, we have to go to these extremes sometimes in our own minds for that acceptance piece and to be okay with where we are. Like fighting over a homework sheet If he doesn't do this one assignment in this class, is he not going to be a successful, happy adult because of this one day where we said, it just can't be done today? No, we have to think about the bigger picture, but without future casting (laughs) our anxiety to it. And that's the trick. I have to make that caveat, but yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Penny, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation about teens that I could talk about forever, but I can't wait to hear what people think about this and share stories about what's been successful for them. So where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, the easiest thing to do is to go to parentingadhdandautism.com. All of the things are linked up there, the podcast, the parent training, our new Revolution Library membership tool and the behavior revolution and the work that we're doing there to try to change the narrative on behavior is there as well. And and a lot of our story, a lot of my ups and downs (laughs) are reflected on my website over the years. And so you can at least join me there, read, listen, and feel probably a lot less alone. Thank you, Penny. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. This has been Learn with Dr. Emily, the podcast. For more resources, including both parent, teacher, and school resources, visit learnwithdremily.com or read my substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, we are publishing this podcast weekly, so make sure you're subscribed by pressing the plus, follow, or subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by EarFluence. All information discussed on this podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have immediate concerns about your child, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King, and we will keep learning together next week.